And uh, we've got a great show lined up. Uh, first up, we've got some news, and uh, then after that, uh, I've got an expert in studio. Tell you more about him shortly. Uh, but first up, Catherine, uh, Catherine Child from The Times. Catherine, how are you today? I'm good. I'm still in medical school, something that you must have done. You? But I'm at the University of Pretoria. You're at the University of Pretoria. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's not great. Let me tell you, there's hardly any internet signal. Yeah. So, uh, and you're chasing off the government ministers. Well, there's government officials talking to um, a bunch of medical students and their professors on Ebola. So, they're trying Sorry, to can say we, can how... We, can, well, can, can I just get that right? So, a bunch of politicians are talking to um, experts who've studied their whole lives about a disease. No, it's not that bad. <laughs> there is a politician with other experts, one who'd actually been in Liberia um, as an epidemiologist. Don't get too now. close to him, um, mate. Don't shake his hand. <laughs> he's just passed his 21-day. He told us all that he's just passed his 21-day quarantine, so he's okay. okay. Um, he's not infectious. Oh, good. Being asked hard questions. Good. All right. Well, uh, what's uh, what's uh, happening this week? Well, I mean, it started to border. I mean, I'm at this sort of press conference meeting with students, and MSF is lambasting the World Health Organization, which they've been doing for months, same old, same old, and, um, was having such a bad response to Ebola. One of the guys speaking, an American who works here in Pretoria, was there, and he just described absolute chaos and how it, he said it himself and told the two Americans that he was actually working with that, um, got infected, no one cared. Um, he called the World <laughs> Health Organization negligent. <laughs> and then, then he might the be professor right. of law... Professor of Law here um, from the University of Victoria said, well, where's Africa's response to Africa's problems? Because aren't we always saying that? There's a fair point. There's a fair point as and, well. Yeah. Kind of saying, what's South Africa doing? They were praising Obama for getting involved. Because he announced um, last night they're sending soldiers off to West Africa. So we, we, we um, rejoice when America sends soldiers to fight Ebola, not when they do it to fight terrorism. Um, we we are kind of hypocrites. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, you didn't hear me? I actually can't hear you. Sorry, you Catherine. Again? Uh, no, no worries. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. Uh, what's, uh, you, you wanted to talk about the dental survey. Oh, my goodness. I was actually drinking a Coca-Cola at work yesterday when a professor sent me an email about a study she was very excited about that showed that we really need to eat less sugar. And I'm getting tired of these stories because I like chocolate. But <laughs> okay. They went and looked at it was a um, professors in London who went and looked at the relationship between sugar and holes in our teeth, which they call a really, really big problem. I must say something I don't really think about in Africa, where there's HIV and TB and malaria. The dentists but listening to the show say, are very excited by this conversation. I just want you to know. We've never discussed them before, and, and they, uh, I think they're over the moon. So, so They're excited about oral conditions, which affect 3.9 billion people, they say. And if we had less sugar, we'd have less, kind of a simplistic view of the study, we'd have less holes in our teeth, and that would be less cost to the health system. Well, this is old news. Why are we doing repeated research? I thought that was unethical. <laughs> are we, uh, do we not know that sugar is bad for our teeth? That's very bizarre. But they went and looked at Japanese people who have far less sugar, and they've actually said the World Health, what they're trying to say is the World Health, advice on how much sugar you can have in your diet is wrong and it needs to be even lower because their study looking at Japanese people who had much less sugar and far fewer holes in their teeth um, shows that actually we're still eating too much sugar. It should be like 3% of your whole diet should be sugar and that's including fructose they say. Uh, So So that's it. That's it. it. Exactly. No more more chocolates for you and uh, in fact stop enjoying your food. How dare you? No, I hate these studies. I just my my <laughs> housemate last night was trying to make diabetic sugar free jelly babies and I think we've all gone crazy. Sugar free yeah, jelly babies. Yeah, it didn't work. What do they the put that in, what do they put in that? Just gelatine. She had diabetic jelly and weird protein shakes and none of it has You know, let me tell you something protein. about diabetic products. No diabetic on earth likes them. In fact, the people who eat diabetic products are not diabetic because the diabetics don't. They they think they taste disgusting and they're a hundred percent right. I have a diabetic friend who eats bar ones, okay, and yes, he's got a pump so he can fiddle with his insulin, and he probably shouldn't. 
But the point is that diabetic food is disgusting. It is disgusting, but we've all gone mad about sugar. It's studies like this that lead people to... Yes, because we were cavemen once and we found stuff growing on trees and it had lots of sugar in it and it was tasty. <laughs> it's uh, but but fair enough. Uh, I, I suppose at the end of the day, we should we should try cut down. But uh, is that, uh, that that's it? That's it for the week, eh, Catherine? Yeah, that's it. Because um, <laughs> oh, you're breaking up. I'm losing you, uh, Catherine. We're gonna I'm gonna cut it, and uh, we'll chat to you uh, not next week. Actually, I'll talk to you at the end of the show. But we'll cut it, and I'll chat to you next time. Thanks so much for the news. And we're going to take a short break. And then uh, my guest in studio, Professor Francois Fenter. Cliffcentral.com We're back with the Health Hour. Uh, Professor Francois Fenter in studio. Um, if you don't know him, he is a leading HIV researcher in South Africa and across the world. Uh, works uh, in uh, sexual and reproductive health. I'll uh, let you give us the exact title. Uh, and uh, also, obviously, background training in uh, infectious disease. So, uh, And obviously a medical doctor. Um, Associate Professor at WITS. I don't know what else there is. A whole bunch of other awards and titles. Uh, anything I've missed? No, that pretty much cuts it. I'm the Executive Director at the Reproductive Health and HIV Institute at WITS. Okay, great. And they do a ton of research on uh, mainly HIV. Yeah, HIV prevention, treatment, 
some stuff in contraception and okay which we re- we definitely want to get onto because um you were uh, you were quite prolific in the news recently when um one of our politicians decided to broach the the subject of HIV and and behavior um around that subject but but let's get there we'll get there um let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Ebola because uh, it's in the news uh, we just heard from Catherine talking about it so she's at a uh, at some sort of uh, conference and uh you know, the, the CNN will have us believe that it's 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 out of control. That uh, we should all be terrified. Uh, what's your take? I think it's. I mean, firstly, Catherine said that something was critical about people not South Africa not seeing resources. That's actually not correct. They've they're doing a lot of the diagnostics. In fact, um, I was we had an update at the university last week on on the diagnostics, which is absolutely terrifying. About sixty percent of them are actually positive. Obviously, these are <laughs> clinical cases, so yeah. you are going to get a higher. But to say South Africa's done nothing is not totally correct. And to be honest, I think seeing a whole of lab people is probably a hell of a lot more useful than 3,000 soldiers. But um, <laughs> I do the think, American example. Yeah, but I think it is it's testing. You know, we've got international air flight that can have a Ebola case here in a few hours. So I think being prepared for these things, even if it's not this Ebola, it's going to be the next viral illness, is probably, is probably good, um, is good practice. Um, and starting to work out how like, there are lots of good things about that are going to come out of this. Is how do you test vaccines in the emergency situation? Because you can't test an Ebola vaccine unless there's an Ebola outbreak. Yeah. You need cases to happen. So how do you do this quickly and efficiently? How do you test this new MZAP drug as quickly and as ethically as possible and then take it to production and make sure it gets to the people who are out there? Also just work out, you know, they export all these Americans and Brits out. They fly these doctors who are infected out and they all live. It doesn't make you kind of wonder whether actually just providing basic decent medical care. Yeah, if you're getting good care, would you survive? Yeah. So I think it raises lots of issues and interesting ones. Um, It also just makes the world think about this a little bit because, you know, they kind of declared the death of infectious diseases in the 70s and it's kind of been a wake-up call for the world is that these things... Yeah, probably the biggest thing we're actually facing. In in fact, uh, I mean, given with with the antibiotic uh, resistance threat as well, uh, if you combine all the bugs we're facing... uh, that's probably our next biggest uh, challenge. Absolutely. Mark Mendelssohn in Cape Town, Cape Town University talks about, you know, he's kind of the horse bolted long time ago with drug-resistant um, uh, sort of antibiotic resistance. And his view is that, you know, there just needs to be much, much better caretaking of it, but it might actually just be too late. So we are, like, with infectious diseases, I mean, you must differentiate, but there's bacteria and the viruses. You know, in the HIV world, we sort of, it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of treatments, but for bacteria, it's not so good. Um, yeah. We've had more ARVs licensed in the last 20 years than all the antifungals, antibacterials, antivirals, antiparasitic drugs combined. So sure. you know, the rest of the infectious diseases areas really needs a bit of, a, needs a bit of help. Is it a, is it a case, though, of uh, necessity? So, I, I mean, you know, nothing happened on Ebola. I mean, yeah. there, there were tons of out- – every three years there was an outbreak yeah. in, in West Africa or Central nothing Africa. Happened. No one cared. Uh, it was kind of let the village die and then, you know, not our problem. Now the Americans get a bit scared that it's going to jump over the jump across the ocean, uh, and suddenly there's lots happening. There's a very funny onion headline that says we're only 50 white cases away from a, a vaccine. It's <laughs> 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 a nasty comment, but I think there's, it's, there's it's, truth in there's it. Some, yeah, there's probably the some truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, first world only really worries when they well, when they have 50 to. 50 white American cases away from a vaccine. That's I think that they said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's 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 probably probably quite fair. Um in terms of the Ebola thing, I mean not really for people to worry about it's essentially look, you can't really do anything. Um we're talking off air about that that uh, screening tool they've got at the airport where, where you walk you walk in and they they kind of check your temperature with a infrared camera. I mean, there have been these infrared cameras around for a while now. When we had the various bird flu um, breakouts and things a couple of about ten years ago, they, they kind of trotted them out. They, you know, there's no reason why if you're going to screen somebody, you screen them before they get on the aeroplane, not after goodness knows how many hours rebreathing everybody's air. So it's a silly machine that I've had no idea why it's there at all. But I think for in terms of Ebola itself, if it comes to South Africa, I think the chances are it's firstly either going to come through a medical facility, so some airlifted case, yeah. which is misdiagnosed. And it's quite easy to misdiagnose the Ebola because it looks like anything. You know, it doesn't – everyone yeah, so knows take, about the bleeding. It takes most 21 days to yeah, kind of show. Most of the patients don't bleed. They actually – you know, they come in with very nonspecific cases. They actually yeah. look more like a malaria than they do look like a classic hemorrhagic fever. And I think it will probably come through the, through the private healthcare system initially, but the – you know, there are sites across the country which have been designated sites where the people will be moved to immediately, where there'll be reverse barrier nurse. So I think 
people shouldn't panic about this. There are much more important things to panic about, but to be wary about when it does come. The other place where it might come is across the border, um, directly through a truck. Yeah, the health ministers like didn't feel that that was too much of a threat, I heard, in one of his briefings. Look, I think the fact it takes 21 days, you know, it does mean that people probably will die before they actually hit the border. But because, you know, the transport infrastructure is, is slow. Yeah. But it's still plausible that people would make it across. I, I heard Zambia had closed their borders to truck drivers for a while. So there are other okay. barriers in there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, until it's containment, recently, essentially. Yeah, it is it's, containment. A, it's a containment issue. So, you know, unfortunately, one person gets it. What you really want to do is stop 10 other people from getting it. Absolutely. And it's probably the people who are most at risk are going to be healthcare workers and cleaners in the hospitals and yeah. things like that. You know, a lot of this is related to how people deal with dead bodies and things and how they prepare the bodies. And I suspect that, you know, the kind of cultural practices that occur in, in West Africa and, and the places where this is occurring are different to here. And from what, you know, from what the people who've worked there have said. So I think it's unlikely it's going to be in the community here. It's not, yeah. it, it's, it's unlikely. It's not impossible. So I think we, people shouldn't panic. They should be wary, but they shouldn't panic. Yeah. Also, I mean, we do seem to have quite a good public health sort of system set up in terms of dealing with outbreaks in general, uh, you know, and communication and, and education and all of that. The, the people at the NICD um, are, are really amazing. Every time they put out the data and stuff, they look, they're really sensible. They're on top of all the science. They're often, they've done this before. They have a lot of experience with um, hemorrhagic fever. So in terms of the public health responses, there's, it's great. I do sometimes get a bit scared, though, when I think about within the public sector, you know, if it cropped up in a public sector hospital, you mm. know, you've worked there, um, how quickly they could respond to actually bring them under, uh, to, to quarantine the cases. It's, um, yeah. We don't really have that on tap. Well, to be honest, we probably don't even have it in the private sector. And if it would be picked up quickly yeah. enough, especially in the outlying hospitals. Yeah, you know, it's not, as I said, it's not an easy diagnosis to make. You really need that travel history. So, you know, if somebody comes out from um, from Probably Liberia the one thing you easily forget to take from most patients. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true, actually. And, you know, I think the the other thing people, they one thing I didn't understand from the health minister, he says he's barring you know, people flying in from those countries, except if they're South African. I'm kind of, you kind of would want everyone to be barred if, if that's yeah. the justification. But yeah, I, th- I think they kind of got a handle on it. And we just got to wait and see and hope we can respond appropriately. Okay. There's no at this point. There's no treatment. There's no vaccine. There's a lot of um, experimental stuff that's been fast tracked into those zones, which mm-hmm. are in- interesting. Um, but we're not going to know for a while, no. really. It's going to be another um, year or two before we really have. And to some extent, the Americans are probably using it as a guinea pig sort of yeah. zone, essentially. You have to. I mean, if you've got, if you're going to test a vaccine, you have to have cases. If you're going to test a new drug, you have to have cases. Absolutely. And you know, this thing kind of, as you were saying. It it comes and goes every three or four years. Normally, there's like 40 or 50 people killed. This is really a major, the yeah. major age outbreak. All right. Well, we've got a, we've got Sam on the line. He, he wants to make a comment. Sam, uh, how are you today? I'm very well, doctor. How are you? Oh, all good. All good. What do you, what do you want to add to the conversation? Uh, my brother, let's talk about Ebola versus AIDS, my brother, because people in the community, they are very scared. They're going to lose their lives over Ebola. But now I tell them not to worry about Ebola because it's all part of the population, my brother. How right am I? Say that again. What's the question? The question is, how afraid should we, are my people back in the community be of Ebola? Should they be more afraid of Ebola or more afraid of AIDS, my brother? All right. Good. All right. Great, Sam. We're going we're gonna to get to the conversation. We're going we're gonna to have a long conversation around HIV and AIDS. Um, and... Uh, so and my brother, one more, my brother. Yeah, what sure. would happen is, can I get Ebola and AIDS at the same time, my brother? Okay, all right, I got you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Um, okay, so, I mean, look, in terms of the worry, we've, we've discussed that. I, I, it's not, I don't really think there's need for panic. Um, no, I think people just need to be sensible and keep an eye out for what comes out. You know, it, it, even in Lagos, where it's, there's been an outbreak um, in Nigeria, it hasn't crept into the community. So I think that yeah. people are, that we know of yet. So I think, you know, the chance that it's going to establish itself is very And if small. you know Lagos, I mean, the community <laughs> literally lives on top of each other. So if, if there was anywhere where it was going to spread easily, it would be there. Yeah, the, the data from that area is still not complete. So I don't think it's a complete, you know, sort of stamp of approval and it's all okay. But yeah. my sense is that I wouldn't worry too much about it. Your chance to, your, you know, HIV is a much more pressing and everyday concern. I must say that of all the two diseases, I'd much rather get HIV than Ebola. Ebola still carries a very significant Yeah, well, I mean, interesting point. Uh, I don't know. A lot of us as doctors often say we'd rather get uh, HIV than uh, diabetes. Yeah. Um, which is a <laughs> interesting conversation. But uh, 
But, uh, and we'll, I mean, a concomitant uh, sort of, so if you get HIV and Ebola, I mean, we don't really know, Just but don't know. Uh, um, there's the, no evidence. Interesting in the places where Ebola's been, there's very, very low prevalence of HIV. I mean, yeah. there is HIV there, but it's very much, much lower than South Africa. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk, uh, let's go into the HIV discussion. Um, firstly, where are we? Because, you know, it, it seems like every sort of six months or so, there's a study released. And then every year, of course, we get statistics. Um, and sometimes they're a bit better and sometimes they're a bit worse. And it's difficult to interpret because um, of, of how we collect data on HIV in South Africa in terms of how we find out who has it and what we extrapolate from that data. Um, and then just sort of finding out if we're getting anywhere. Um, so you're the expert. Tell me. So the one thing about South Africa is we probably have better stats than any other country in the world. And people like, you know, you've got to ask yourself at which point do you stop overanalyzing the figures and asking yourself, you know, to which nearest 100,000 people are you at? Um, we have three major surveys done in completely different ways by completely different people, which come out with approximately the same reason. Uh, the numbers are approximately the same, give or take a few hundred thousand. Okay. You know, when you're talking about 6 million people and one says 5.8 million, one says 6.2, it's it really, doesn't really make it doesn't really matter. Difference. I think what's very clear is that um, on the entry level where people are getting infected, that has really not got a hell of a lot better. It's, there's been yeah. a slight down, down swing, in, particularly amongst teenagers, interestingly, um, over the years. Um, but overall, the numbers of new cases has not gone down a lot. It's gone down a little bit. But you see this yeah. all infectious disease. Any change in gender there, or is not, it still the same? Well, sometimes it's interesting. People, there's a very distinct gender division. So women and girls get between the ages of 18 and 30. It's dramatic. It's actually phenomenal, this rise. Well, men have a kind of a much more direct trajectory over time, over the entire lifespan. Yeah. What's interesting is the only data we have over the, both of them is that men are actually more vulnerable to HIV than women, which is not what's conventionally understood. The only data we have on this is from the Africa Center, which showed that, uh, which is based in KwaZulu-Natal, that showed over the lifetime risk, men were slightly more. Okay. Inf- All right. Well, that would make sense because of the peak that women get. Absolutely. In a so, age group. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the kind of, um, the gender disparity just shows us incre- men probably need interventions right through their lifespan. Women need, particularly adolescent girls, needs need help, and they need it quickly because the one study we did showed that almost um, almost one third of all girls were infected by the age of twenty one. So wow. that's a hell of a thing. When we presented it to the um, to one of our senior United States collaborators, he said that if that was America, they would close every school tomorrow. <laughs> and that's that does make you kind of pause when you think how bad it is. Yeah, it's almost become we become quite. It's normal. It's part yeah, of part yeah, of every day. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay. So. I mean, the question I have also is, we were talking about how, you know, HIV is not that big a problem, North Africa, West Africa. Why? Why is sub-Saharan Africa such, why do we have such an issue? Do we know? No, and I think that's the, the question. Um, Johnny Steinberg, who wrote a book called The Three-Letter Plague, a um, short little book which everyone should read, it's really good, um, was on the radio actually and said that that was the single question why the community doesn't trust scientists is we've tried to explain it so easily away as if it's something that's peculiar to sub-Saharan Africa. When a young, and uh, to be quite frank, this is the way it is, is a young black woman in KwaZulu-Natal with less sexual partners, who has less sex, who loses her virginity at a later age, is 3,000 times more likely to have HIV than her British or European co- counterpart. Now, in medicine, the only time we have those kind of differences is when there's a profound genetic or yeah. uh, environmental issue. You don't get that unless there are those things. And this is where I've got angry with people trying to explain it around behaviors. So people are like, oh, it's, you know, the men are screwing around or the women are this or, the, you know, it's yeah. too many STDs and things like that. And you, it's really difficult to understand how a sexual behavior could have that kind of impact. Even highly prom- so-called promiscuous societies within, um, within developed countries don't have this kind of level of difference of risk. Yeah, so absolutely. unless this young woman is having threesomes every single night, you know, with two different partners – it's difficult to understand why that. that I, is I mean, I think it's important to talk about because I'm not sure people realize, in terms of actual risk, and it, it, I'm not trying to promote that you go out and and sort of just randomly, you know, have sex with everyone. But certainly, risk of HIV is, is it's 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 a very inefficient virus. It, it, you know, not once it's in your body, but to get it. It it is in developed countries. It's much more efficient to transmit. It's a, there's a much more efficient transmission process in particularly in, in the southern Saharan African area. And that is something, you know, we kind of used to teach all the time, you know, that this is per risk act, this is the X percentage that yeah. you get. And you're right, it was actually extremely low. 
But what's very clear is from data that we have from our own studies as well as from all pool data is that the, the, this transmission risk is much, much greater. Um, so we've kind of been teaching, you know, you know, you know uh, particularly in the sort of chronic infected phases, the chance is one per 10,000 sex acts. That's like sex every night for 27 years. You <laughs> contract it once. Well, the reality is probably in our area, it's m- at a far lower level. And it's, there's a whole lot of factors that impact on it, including, you know, um, how many sex partners you have, when you have sex, and all these things. But we don't actually understand it as well as we thought we did. We don't, and I think we don't many, know fully. Yeah. It's just, it, yeah. Um, genetics, yeah. I mean, I, I, I heard a theory uh, there's an HIV uh, um, practitioner uh, a while back. Uh, he he, he, he uh, gave a lecture where he had this, this sort of, he had two theories. One is that there must be some sort of genetic predisposition um, in sub-Saharan Africa. We haven't proven it, but that was his feeling. Um, your thoughts on that? No, I think that's very plausible. You know, there are tons of genetic diseases that play out that modify. And there are actually known HIV. Um, there, there's known genes that impact on HIV, both in terms of transmission, yeah. contraction, as well as how quickly you progress to AIDS. I just don't think we've put our finger on the proper genes yet in terms of that. The other thing is potentially, this would be more controversial and less likely, my view, is, is some sort of environmental factor that, I don't know, a nutritional factor or something that just makes the transmission higher. effect that higher. And yeah. I, all of this makes sense. It's just we haven't quite put our finger on it. And I think we've been almost distracted by the weird behavior stuff, you know, as if that is what's going to be driving. And I don't want your listeners to walk away here. You know, the more sex partners you have, the more you're likely your chances to get HIV. Absolutely. But what's important is, I mean, I'll give you a stat that's interesting. There was a, um, there have been various comparative studies. If you live in Thailand and you have, and you're a male and you have more than 60 lifetime partners, your chance of having HIV is 2%. If you live in Uganda and your, and the number of uh, sexual partners is 20 or more, your chance of having HIV is 18%. So it's got more, far more to do with where you live than your sexual sure. partners. So there's clearly a dose response with your sexual yeah. partners. But there's something about where you live as well which makes it more efficient. And so we, we don't really know why. I, I certainly haven't seen anything that's compelling. Sure. It's, but certainly in medicine, when we see these kind of epidemiological trends, gen, the first thing you should be asking is what's the genes? Is there a behavior, which is clear? Yes. And it's difficult for me to put my finger on a single behavior that would explain such a dramatic difference. Or is it genetic or mm-hmm. is it environmental? And those are the things we haven't looked at enough. Okay. Let's uh, take a break, and uh, when we come back, uh, let's get into the whole behavioral side of things because I think that's uh, quite a long discussion, potentially controversial discussion, and uh, we can get into some of the recent uh, sort of spats about that. Cool. We're hanging on everyone, each and every word they say. We're banging on every door Never thought we'd see this day Look at us while it spreads for days Happy we came, we'd lost our way again Look at us while it spreads for days and days
Welcome back. Uh, remember that you can contact us uh, either telephonically 0861-555-189 and you can send a message straight into studio on WeChat. Uh, carrying on with the discussion on uh, HIV uh, in general with uh, my guest, uh, Prof. Francois Fenter. Uh, let's talk about the whole behavioral thing because, well, there's... Uh, there's often a bit of controversy around this. I think, you know, people want to oversimplify it. And we've discussed that in some ways we aren't getting anywhere. Um, we've been sort of beating the same drum about prevention for 25 years, probably, or thereabouts. Um, and uh, our new infections aren't going anywhere. It's the same number of people still getting infected. Um, and uh, it's an issue. And the oversimplifications come, I mean, the 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 one thing that happened recently was and has happened repetitively is um the premier of the western cape helen zilla um has a particular view that uh, a few things firstly that uh, if you give someone knowingly hiv if you have hiv and you sleep with someone knowingly you should uh, be prosecuted it's an attempted murder type of thing uh, and also that uh, we need to focus more on the behavior of people because this is, in her opinion, happening based on uh, young girls with older, me- older men and promiscuity and all of that. So you wrote a whole piece. Um, I don't want to spoil the conversation by uh, re-summarizing. So let's, let's go into it. Uh, firstly, criminalizing HIV. So I think the first thing is, her frustration with prevention, I think I share. You know, I think like yeah. we've been told we've been peddled so-called science and stuff on, on prevention, which wasn't science. And I think a lot of it was just moralizing and just instinct. And like the one thing in medicine teaches you is that if you operate on clinical instinct, you're often wrong. And I think with the HIV prevention world, they've been wrong more often than they've been right. Mm-hmm. We know it's sexually transmitted. Beyond that, it gets a bit fuzzy. Okay. And so the first thing she argued, but a lot of the stuff that she put forward was just simply doff. You know, she really doesn't. She hasn't engaged. Firstly, she comes out and says, oh, you know, I'm being so politically incorrect and that's why I'm so brave and that's nobody wants to say these things. It's, the reason people aren't saying it is because there's no evidence to support her position. Sure. So the first thing is the criminalization story. We have every single country has laws which stop you from hurting somebody deliberately. So yeah. if you sleep with somebody, you deliberately give them HIV. The second law actually can integrate. So we haven't had the same case. way, if I lend you my car, like one of the lawyers was giving me this, if I lend you my car and I know my brakes are... Are dodgy and I don't tell you and you hurt yourself, I can be prosecuted. In the same way, if you go and sleep with someone you have HIV and knowingly put them in and expose them, you can be prosecuted. Okay. But we but don't have evidence that that's happening. No, in fact, we have completely the opposite. The people who sleep around and who are actually the least, um, who are actually responsible and certainly in the data we have from the United States are the people who don't know the HIV status. So that's who she must go after, are the idiots who are not testing. The people who know they're HIV positive, we have tons of data from Africa, from Europe, from America, showing that they're the ones who are much more likely to practice safe sex. They're the ones who are much more likely to decrease the number of sex, sexual partners. They're likely to protect the other people. So she's so, going off so the wrong... once you know you're infected, you're yeah. actually not the problem. You're not it's the problem. The, it's the people who, who, who don't test and don't know whether they're infected who are the issue. In fact, even 
there's even, and this is a little bit more controversial, but the people who test negative, there's some evidence that they become disinhibited and they're actually likely to go and indulge in more high-risk behavior. So the people you need to go after and say, listen, be careful. You need to tell people they need to know their status. If they don't know their status, frankly, I think it's irresponsible in this day and age. Yeah. And the second thing is the people who are negative say, you better look after yourself and you better like look and think hard about that status. Let's, so I think that's, yeah. Let's talk about just the testing side and, and why it's, it almost isn't compulsory or it, you know, it, 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 you know, and, and, and mix it up with the stigma as well. Cause I hate, hate the concept of HIV stigma. It drives me mad. And I almost think it's taken control of the entire conversation around I HIV. Agree. Um, and we, we, we don't have honest conversations about HIV because we're so worried about this concept of stigma, which we've created. It, it, I don't know. I'm not convinced that it ever existed until we made it a big thing. Look, I think uh, there's a famous doctor in South Africa called Francesca Conrad. She says the best way to stigmatize a condition is to, is to, unnecessarily treated as different. And I think for all of us in the medical field, we've been frustrated by the fact that it's been treated so, so specifically. So I think when we go to my average patient and we do a whole lot of blood tests, you know, and then we have one blood test that you have to sign consent for, yeah. that's a great way and, to scare and, and the hell out of We just take forms for everything yeah. else, and then we come to the bed, we close the curtains, and we're like, sorry, I just needed to ask you, you know, would you mind, can we do an HIV test? So, it, you know. I look, I think they are. I mean, one thing... It's a big deal. I think one thing is that, that people, uh, you know, the, there is something a little bit, there is stuff that is still exceptional about HIV. It is scary. It's sexually transmitted. It's highly stigmatized. There's still like people get stoned to death in our communities because of it. So it's not something to be taken lightly and it's not a minor disease. So I do think people need to be treated with respect and they need to go through some sort of uh, understanding of what they, they, they're getting into when they get a blood test. But I also think that people have gone to, they've, they've scared us around the long things. We have consensus from between civil society and um, a whole lot of human rights groups and the clinician society where we've got a series of steps, which is essentially this is what we're testing. This is the kind of things that will happen if you're positive. This is what we're going to do for you if you're negative, And this is the kind of processes. This is how good the test is. It's a really common sense, good thing, which respects both the fact that the person has the right to say no, as well as the fact that we don't make it into this big, scary event. Yeah. I mean, I, part of the, the fear is I think, you, you know… I, Fifteen years ago, if you had HIV, you were in a lot of trouble. Yeah, um, is- and I, I'm not sure if we've won the the sort of media side of things where we explain to people that comment about most doctors would probably prefer to get HIV than diabetes because HIV is so treatable these days. I think people don't still don't get it. I think many doctors don't get it. You get it because you know you've kind of been through the the training processes. Now there's now three studies which looked at HIV positive patients in clinics. And looked at their life expectancy, and they were living longer than the people around them who are HIV negative. Yeah, with hypertension, yeah, that's, diabetes, that's all the other horrible yeah. things that they, you. Yeah, you know, I get yelled at not to smoke, to go and exercise, you know, stop drinking so much. Um, you know, if you're HIV negative, you don't get exposed to that. If you're HIV positive, you go walk through the thing, you get, you know, you get your blood pressure taken, you get chatted about your pap smears, you know, all those good things that are happening mm. are now happening in those communities. So it's good news for HIV positive people is that they're getting a good package of care here. So. And the drugs themselves are amazing. I mean, like, when I look at what we were dealing with 10, 12 years ago and what we're dealing with now, you know, pop one tablet a day and you get on with your life. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. With, with much less side effects. Yeah. And diabetes, you have to really look out for yourself. You know, the, the drugs are far more toxic. They, it's much harder to get the doses right. You have to look after a whole range of other things around your diet, your alcohol intake. And, and even if you do that, you're still probably going to suffer the side effects. You still will. You may well have problems. And I think that's where… I think most doctors who work in the HIV field and have worked in diabetes, you know, it's not, it's a no brainer. Yeah. In fact, it's, you know, the, there's a lot of activism starting to happen in the diabetic world around why can't we get better treatments? You know, these guys have made so much in the space of 10 years, you've transformed the disease. We're stuck with the same stuff we had 10, 12 years ago. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So, all right. So criminalizing, back to the criminalizing is a bad idea. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. I do a lot of like legal work. And it takes so long to get any result. You know, it's a really terrible, terrible way to go about it. Which is why Zilla, who's had to do with the spy tape stuff, you know, she should know better. It's like, it, look how long it took her to get that legal yeah. stuff going through. You know, sure. To take one person to court because they might have put you in danger. And the other thing it does is it also distracts people away from, you know, there's two people here. You know, if, you, if it's consensual sex, you take some responsibility for playing the game. And, Absolutely. You know, you know there's a risk. Yeah. Certainly in, in our country where, where it's prevalent, it's a, it's a message you hear constantly. Yeah. Um, all right. 
in terms of the other behavioral stuff, I mean, I was uh, watching a, a lecture you did um, <laughs> to the South African Clin- HIV Clinician Society, and um, you were talking a lot about behavior. <laughs> There's a lot in there um, about the different behaviors around HIV, what we do know, what does work, what doesn't work. So, Where are we with all of that? You know, it's clear it's sexually transmitted. Okay, that is open and shut. And there's different forms of sex which are much higher risk than others. Like anal sex is the most dangerous form, receptive anal sex. Um, and for those of you like all blocking your ears out there now, there's lots of data that lots and lots of South Africans, more and more South Africans now, heterosexual South Africans are engaging in anal sex. So there's a sexual practice that's growing within the the communities um, which is even more high risk than vaginal sex. Um, oral sex is almost no risk whatsoever. But these kind of what is also clear is the more sexual partners you have, the greater your chance of contracting HIV. So it's very clear that, that there's no debate about that. Okay. Then the, the debate thing comes in is it's the kind of sexual networks that you're engaging in. And this is where Zilla got involved is she talks about these things about concurrency, which is where you overlap your sexual relationships. So and you're having three sexual yes. partners at the same so time. So I'm like – I'm married to my husband. I have two regular boyfriends that whenever I go down to Cape Town, I'm involved with. So that's the kind of model that's been put out there is that there's something about us that we have more of those and that that drives the epidemic. Now, while scientifically that's quite plausible in kind of the abstract form, it's very weird to me that 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 kind of of partnering would have only evolved in sub-Saharan Africa. Why isn't it happening in France or in Brazil or anywhere else? Yeah. Good friend of mine says, you know, we're male. We don't need to be more disinhibited about our number of sexual partners. <laughs> so, like, why would it be different here? Why would this drive the epidemic? So, putting that to one side, it's, it's plausible. But, again, the Quas- in KwaZulu-Natal, the Africa Center did the study where they followed up people and they asked them about concurrency and found no correlation with concurrency. They found correlation with the number of sexual partners, but not with the overlap. Yeah. But essentially, it matters how many you have. But yeah. if you have 30 of your lifetime or 30 in two weeks – there's it's, no difference. It doesn't seem to be a difference in terms of that study. And granted, yeah. it's one study, it's one community. But the people who look at this, and who very, there's a very vocal group who are very strong proponents of it until about three or four years ago when the study came out, um, who said that this explains everything about the epidemic. They've kind of gone away. Because, this is why Zilla shouldn't raise this. Is The reason it's gone away is because they haven't presented alternative data to, to question it. Okay. Um, but it's also it's a stupid definition. If you think about it, you'll have like a guy, a very religious guy in a polygamous religious marriage, mm. who has three or four wives, who's now concurrent, who's got no risk yeah. whatsoever. And then you'll have a guy who goes to a different sex worker every single night, who's not, in terms of this definition, overlapping, because it's a different sex worker. So the, even the definition is a bit rubbish. So the whole okay. thing around concurrency, I think most of us it, kind of put it to bed. As you said, evidence just isn't there. Yeah. Um, and it never was, to be honest. It was yeah, just it, kind of a, a theory. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a problem with health in general, in the public space, is that often people try to apply what they think is logic yeah. um, to health problems, and, and, and it just doesn't correlate at all. And, and sometimes, to be fair, you do need to take a bit of a leap of faith. You know, we knew it was sexually transmitted. We didn't know it was correlated with the number of sexual partners at the time, but it kind of made sense. So I think yeah. sometimes you do need to do that. I think what the concurrency people made a mistake of is that's a very complicated thing to, to tell the public. Is like, you know, stop having a second partner at the same time. Like, you know, I have the church yelling at me. I have my mother yelling at me. I have my entire community <laughs> yelling at me not to do that. And yeah. now the government's telling me that as well when mm-hmm. you have multiple senior politicians who are clearly not following that part. So it's a, the message from the very beginning was probably flawed. All right. Look, so, I mean, I don't think that uh, Helen Zilla is an unreasonable person. Um, and uh, you and her and I probably want to get to the same place, which is essentially we want to get somewhere where we have – Basically, no new infections. Uh, all our patients who have are infected are on ARVs with very low viral loads, if non-existent, um, and living long lives and everyone's kind of happy. So, utopia. <laughs> How do we get there? I think there are no easy answers. And I think that's where I share her frustration. I think it doesn't, it's not a case to simply then go off and like have your common sense view, which is completely agnostic to scientific process. I mean, it's essentially she's, she's just preaching you know, away whatever is popped into her head. But, you know, the thing about it is that saying reduce your, be aware of the fact that the more sexual partners you have, the greater your risk. Use condoms because you know that works. And then look, you know, is start looking at the nature of these relationships and how much you're trusting your friends and just get people to test. And the funny thing about Zilla is that I had the same tiff with her three years ago. The 
two or three months before that, the ANC ripped into her because she was running these aggressive um, HIV testing programs. And I was one of the people who said, no, I don't see any problem with you support her. In yeah, that I said, like, you know, incentivizing HIV testing, I think, is the way to go. If people, you know, like when I'm at Discovery, they incentivize me to get an HIV test, to get my flu vaccine, to get my cholesterol sorted out. Why yeah. shouldn't poor people get incentives for the HIV so test? So if you're going to get a meal to come and yeah. get an HIV test, like, perfectly I, I, fine. Well, I think we need data to show it's the best way to do it. But yeah, yeah I don't see morally and ethically why it's such a big deal. Okay. All right. So the same old messages, essentially. I know. And that's frustrating. Yeah. The, the other thing that she didn't get right is that when somebody goes on to treatment, this is why getting people tested is so important. If they get treatment, they stop transmitting. That's yeah. the bottom line. So, so if people got tested earlier and gone to treatment quickly and effectively, you know, the problem is solved. It's an interesting because that HIV uh, sort of uh, practitioner I was chatting to you about earlier, he he had a, a concept that he had a concept of a sex holiday. So what he what he described was essentially uh, for the listeners who, who don't know this, but when you first infected with HIV, the first six weeks roughly that you're infected, your your viral load, so the number of viruses of HIV viruses in your bloodstream peak uh, massively. We're talking millions of of of, of little viruses in your blood. Uh, they then sort of drop off, they taper off, and it stays at relatively low level in your body for a number of years until you sort of kind of progress into what we would call clinically AIDS. Um, and then your, your levels rise again. And his, his argument was those people after that six weeks in those few years before they then develop, um, full blown HIV AIDS, um, they're actually relatively low, low risk of transmission. His argument therefore was, if you could get South African to not have sex for six weeks, um, you would probably drop our transmission rates dramatically. Alan Whiteside actually wrote an article on it a couple of many years, like 10 years ago, where he, his mathematical calculations would need to be three to four months. But okay. um, he was a strong advocate. Um, and he of said a sex like, holiday. Yeah, of a sex holiday. So anyway, there was a running joke about it because he'd said something along the lines of, you know, all you unmarried people are just going to have to give up sex for three months. He said, and because I'm married, we're not having sex anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, theoretically, you're right. But good luck with trying to get that to this, our community. Um, for everybody to take a sex holiday for three months. Uh, it's again, scientifically valid. How you practically get out there? I don't know. <laughs> I suppose that's a lot of the problem a lot of the time, which is that, uh, you know, if, if Theoretically, we could stop HIV tomorrow. We could do that. We could test everyone and get everyone who is positive onto drugs. And if we could do all of that within the space of six months, um, I mean, we'd drop our HIV rates dramatically. Look, I think we already know that groups of people are really at risk. And this is why, again, I was angry with the Department of Education last week when they said they wouldn't allow testing at schools. You know, we know that young girls are like the highest risk is between the ages. It's actually starts at about 15 and it peaks at about 24. Between the ages, those ages, they are unbelievably at risk. They won't allow contraception. They won't allow condoms. There's kind of sex educations like just don't get pregnant is essentially the message. You know, they don't talk to kids about sex is for pleasure. Yeah. I hate to tell, um, the world, education facilities, but that's most of the reason why people have sex is not to have kids. And if you don't give people proper advice, there's tons of, of, um, data from Nordic countries and from, uh, you know, from Europe where they've got decent sex education with the kids where the pregnancy rates go down, the STD rates go down. So it's clear if you give them honest advice and you give them the means to protect what, themselves, they'll probably use it. What's what's stopping that? Is it religious stuff? Is it uh, just uh, you know, parents? Is it? You know, everybody carries on around here about how, you know, it's all it's immoral. We've got this moral like problem in our society. You know, it's all breakdown and stuff and with no data whatsoever to support it. You know, somehow our children have morphed into these monsters that we can't control. And I do kind of think that, you know, there is a real problem within the schools. There's very high pregnancy rates, as I said, very high HIV rates. We know that the, ST, the sexually transmitted diseases raised, there have been several studies done, um, again by NICD, showing very scary rates. So these kids are sexually active and they're not protecting we, themselves. I mean, we know, surely we've known that for at least 10 years. It's a different world. I mean, so the uh, parents' reaction is, oh my God, there's a moral outcry. It's obviously the television's fault. And, um, all the video <laughs> and the cell games. phones and yeah, all the rest uh, of it. So we'll offset that we, and we'll, we'll clamp down everything that deals with sex at the schools rather than simply say, this is the modern world we're living in. I want to protect my child in the Educate. best way possible. Yeah. And the education and giving them the tools. Like you can't tell them don't have sex. That's not going to work. 
you need to make sure there's condoms available, there's contraception, that there's post-exposure prophylaxis. And certainly one of the things we're interested in looking at is giving adolescent girls pre-exposure prophylaxis. In some of the yeah. age groups and some of the schools, their chances are as high as 10% per year of contracting HIV. It's, it's, it's an interesting topic you raised. We don't have much time to talk about it. But um, I know there was – was it last year, the year before, big study, I think American study, which – with the with the pre exposure, essentially yeah. you take an ARV it's cocktail like a, yeah. before you you you, you sleep with someone yeah. um, in a high risk situation. Well, just sleep with someone, and uh, and and it prevents potentially uh, prevents. No, it's it's very very effective. Over ninety percent. It's like malaria prophylaxis or a contraceptive. Okay. You know, you just won't get the chances are of you getting HIV are very small. So if you're in a very high risk situation, so we're using it. At the moment, in our sex workers in Hillbrow, there's a huge sex worker community and sex workers in every single corner of the country. Yeah. Um, that's where they are incredibly high risk that we would provide it. The interesting thing is that adolescent girls' risk is not a hell of a lot lower. So, again, it would make sense to give them something that would protect them. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than that, wringing your hands and saying, oh, you know, moral regeneration. The government uh, in on it or no, not yet? No, it's a politically very fraught issue. You know, the minute you kind of talk about adolescents being sexually active and it's it's – and it makes no sense whatsoever to me because the second they walk into a university, they have access to everyone. Put your hands over your eyes and ears. Yeah. It doesn't happen, yeah. eh? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, just the last few minutes. Let's uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, if you do have HIV because I, I think uh, it's important uh, always to give the message that uh, it's not the end of the world. Um, we obviously would prefer you not to get HIV just as we'd prefer you not to get diabetes, hypertension, uh, any other sort of uh, what chronic illness because it's a chronic illness, um, but if you do get it, uh, there, there, you know, you can deal with it. Absolutely. The important thing is not to get tested when it's really late because then picking up the pieces, you still will probably be okay. But picking up the pieces is a bit of a, yeah. a pain in the neck. You often end up having TB or having sinus troubles and pneumonia and God knows what. And occasionally you can pick up something that's so serious that we can't do anything about it. So, but that's unusual. What you want is to be completely healthy, to test positive, to find out when your immune system is just that kind of critical level where you're starting to head to the danger zone, and then you go on to one tablet a day. There's new tablets being released into the private sector at the moment, which are even safer than the current ones we have in the state sector. And the state sector is really, really good. It's the stuff you would have got in New York or London until three years ago. So yeah. it's fantastic. We really yeah. are you know, it's spoiled. It's the a tripler yeah. and, and, and it's various generics. Yeah. yeah. So it's a three tablets in one. It's got very few side effects. The side effects tend to be really early on in the kind of treatment cycle in the first few weeks. And then you usually get used to it and it's fine. And the nice thing is you kind of go back to normal. We've got one patient who ran the comrade to 12th comrades marathon at the moment. She was had a terrible form of meningitis in 1998. Wow. So you kind of have these miracle stories. And like I said, your life expectancy goes back to normal. Your sport goes back to normal. You can have kids. In fact, and your chance of transmitting the virus is zero. So as long you, as you're on the drug, it's essentially it's pretty completely good. suppressed. As long as you take your tablets every day and you don't have side effects, which occasionally, occasionally, occasionally happen, you'll be fine. Sure. Well, that's uh, a great conversation and a great chat. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Um, you know, it's uh, it's great to have you. I'm I'm sure we'll have you again because uh, maybe next time we get a whole bunch of stats, we can get you to. Uh, interpret <laughs> where we are i mean uh, we can only hope it'll get better um and uh you know the 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 message that's going out there which uh has been going out for a long time will be listened to because uh, i think uh, as you mentioned everyone is just frustrated and that's that's a, often the, the cause of uh, the arguments that happen and some of the rationalizing that that goes on um but uh thanks for coming in thanks very much and uh, till next time, uh, next week we don't have a show. It's uh, Heritage Day, um, so uh, or Bra Day. Uh, you can have that argument on Twitter next week. Um, but uh, we won't be in. Um, there's a special on Cliff Central, so please listen in anyway. And the following week I'm away, and hopefully we'll have a stand-in. And I'll see you in October. <laughs>